Welcome to PBC Talks. If you would like to find out more information, please visit pbc.org.uk. So let's pray first. Father, thank you for the, <clears throat> the faithfulness of your people as they give each week and they give each month and give not just money but everything else in their lives as well. And I want to thank you and start today by declaring that we are, we're yours. And we can't do it without your help. And this morning I definitely can't do it without your help. So please help my voice, help the words to um, be seeds that go into the ground, make the ground fertile and ready to receive the seeds so the seed can grow. The seed can turn into a plant and that plant can bear fruit. I can't do anything about that. So it's up to you, Lord. I'll leave in your great hands and ask that you'll just do what you need to do this morning. Amen. Right. Hi, good morning. I'm fine, thank you. I'm fine, thank you. Excellent. I might be wrong, but with a four-week series on stewardship ahead of you, there'll be some folk thinking, great, about time we had a teaching on this, while others will be thinking, yeah, I've always wanted to explore the churches in July and see what they do. But stewardship is not just about money, and it definitely isn't about a stingy God who wants to take it away from you. This set of four talks is going to explore how Christian stewardship is actually quite central to serving our God. What it won't be is a series on wealth and prosperity, um, because name it and claim it is definitely not on our list of behaviours that we support. And if you think the folk who moved upstairs for interactive have just dodged a bullet, well, they have the same material to be tilled again today upstairs. So they've just got it sweetened by cake. <coughs> Let's first, uh, if we may, deal with the elephant in the room. The, the church income has been reducing over the last few years, and there's been a dip since last September, about the time Neil left. So if we continue with this, this level of income, we'll struggle to find and fund one minister, let alone two. And as we're not centrally funded, money can only come from us, from what we give. So that's why those bags are very important, and giving thanks is important. <coughs> the Old Testament speaks of giving one-tenth of our income to God, which I agree with and would like to do, but so far, I've not been able to. So some years ago, God and I came up with an affordable plan, an affordable number, and since then, I've been bumping it up every year. So we are, as a family, we are moving towards 10%, and that may be puny compared to many other folks in church, but it's not a competition. God is looking at my heart, not at my standing order. So there, I've got it off my chest. It's now not a confession, it's a statement of where I am. 10% of income is my goal. That's where I'm aiming for, and I'm getting closer each year, but I'm not there yet. 
However, when it comes to stewardship, I am fully committed and I've got some experience of being in that place. It's a, a very familiar system to me. The, the principle of stewardship, it works. Excellent. The principle of stewardship that we're going to examine is that God created and owns everything. But he created us to be the stewards of all that he owns. Which means he has entrusted us with his possessions. Um, we're his children, so he's given it to us, his children, to manage on his behalf. But the ownership still lies with him. Because the principle is stewards don't own stuff. Don't you find it odd that how most people react when church wants to talk about money and giving? Uh, it's as though the cricket club in a parallel system, you know, or motor insurance company, or the AA, never change your subs. You know, it's still 1985 rates. You know, and we get surprised. But they don't do that. You know, the money costs of everything have gone up every year. And for some reason, yeah, there's a reluctance uh, when it comes to giving to church. It might not be present when there's a bill coming in, but it, it just seems to manifest itself there, which is kind of strange. There was an interesting thing done in 2008, a study which I came across that said in the two to four-year-olds, they have this built-in understanding that the first person who picks up that toy is the owner of that toy. So even when they give it to someone else 10 minutes later, they still think that toy is there. So there's something built into us about ownership. Giving of time and, and money in particular towards church are sensitive topics. And so normally we avoid asking for them in PVC. You know, perhaps once a year, around about budget time, uh, we'll get a, a nudge about giving or about commitments. But not this time. However, you'll be pleased to hear me repeat the series is not just about money. Stewardship is a much broader thing than that. It's a much broader area. The scope is greater. Over the coming weeks, the sermons that you're going to have are going to cover three more things. How it is an act of worship, how our work and our giving are actually linked together, and how it's a spiritual, one, two, three, how it's a spiritual act and with supernatural consequences. We're not just putting money in the bag. We're doing something at a higher level than that. But we begin with the main thing, that God actually owns everything anyway. And we're going to have a look at that. And in a spiritual sense, we're going to see that whatever we own is actually on loan from God. So what I'm going to do is read, I will read, from Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. If you want to find it, I'll give you a couple of seconds of, of swiftly swiping through your phone. This is um, the parable. Um, in some versions, it's called the parable of five talents. In, in this NIV version, it's talked about bags of gold. But talents and gold are just an old and a modern way of describing a big chunk of money. So... Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, 
talents of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gave, gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man received five bags of gold, brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five bags more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ouch. When Jesus spoke to his disciples in that passage, it was on the Mount of Olives, without a crowd, at the big end of a tough day challenging the Pharisees and teachers of the law in the temple. Challenging their conduct as the behaviors they displayed frankly stank as leaders. The, the, that day had climaxed with Jesus concluding their performance appraisal with some colorful remarks. Not what you'd hear normally in your workplace appraisals given, which is just as well. He was calling them hypocrites, whitewashed tombs and are not just snakes but broods of vipers they didn't take it well and it's significant that this happened a couple of days before passover and good friday and crucifixion they had the claws out and they went off and did their plotting and scheming so after a bruising day with the elders and the priesthood here he was getting those final messages across to his disciples the important last lessons that he wanted to give to them before Thursday came. Maundy Thursday and Friday starting off. The illustration of a master giving control and responsibility for his wealth to a servant might seem somehow shocking to us, but that in that area it wasn't uncommon for a servant to work his way up and to becoming a steward of the farm 
or the master's business. But the numbers, now they're different. The numbers in this parable would have made the disciples sit up and really pay attention because one bag or one talent of gold was around 20 years' pay for a guy working in the fields in that time. If you convert that to, to our money time, our 2018 currency, one bag of gold, one talent, is about a million pounds. So Jesus was making a very strong point about stewardship and about the trust of the master. Let's have a closer look at stewardship so we can get our heads around it and understand what it actually means rather than just being a word. Because unfortunately, I'm going to use the word a lot this morning. It was this system where a person was entrusted to be the manager of the employer's assets. That will be their land, their livestock, the other slaves and the property, and maybe even the whole farming operation if it's an estate. But the difference is today... He wouldn't get paid. There was no financial reward for that steward. It was just what he did. Typically, it would be a slave or a servant who'd been upgraded, and he would be acting as the, the, the chief of staff of, the, of the, the rest of the guys on the site. So he'd be the manager, the boss, the one to go to, to get things sorted. And if you look at him, he'd probably have access to some of the master's possessions. He'd have some authority to say yes and no to things. But ultimately, it was still the master's property, his stuff, his wealth, his ownership. It was his. Now, in a contemporary setting, you know, nowadays, you'd think, okay, there's a, a factory, and it's got millions of pounds worth of equipment inside it, and it's entrusted to... The, the manager, the operations director, whatever you want to call him, it's his job. But he's got the big salary. If you want to compare it to more uh, a realistic way, it'll be like the minister in our church, or you know, even take out the salary again. It's like the CLTR, you know, the like leadership team. You know, they're doing a lot, no money involved. It's just to get everything working well and doing what should be happening, and so it works. So someone at that point, as a steward, is given the trust of the owner and he's given the resources to look after. And he's responsible for how it performs and the results. And he's responsible only to the owner, not the shareholders, not the other guys in, in the business. Now, you'll find, if you go home and pull out your concordance, that there are two Greek words. I want that one. That's it. There are two Greek words in the New Testament for this job. Oikonomos and epitropos. Now, Peter and Paul, when they did their letters, they used these words, but they like to use the words oikonomos, which means steward, manager, or administrator. Um, but I couldn't resist the temptation to use the word epitropos because it also translates as guardian, and it lends itself very nicely for the title of our series, Guardians of the Galaxy, footnote, nothing to do with the movie. They both describe, though, the person who manages and looks after the boss's wealth. This is a role with no benefits but responsibility. Now, in Peter, 
In Peter, 1 Peter 4, verse 10, it says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So now God is taking on that word steward into his vocabulary. It means God's portrayed not just as the master of a farm or an estate, but it's master of God's grace, master of all creation, the galaxy, in other words. There are many galaxies. So here we are with God, created everything, and he's put people in charge of looking after what he's created. So you have people who are entrusted by this wise and miraculous God who runs things through people like us. So, first of three points. And that is going to be that one. Everything I own is on loan. We're going to compare ownership with stewardship because they're two different sides of a coin. Have you ever made an inventory of everything that you own? A list of anything that you can say is mine. It's mine. Now, I don't mean the, the, the tedious list you make for the insurance company when you change policies from that company to this company. I mean a list of everything that belongs to you. This is mine. So it will have your house, it will have your car, it will have your furniture probably as well. It will logically include your mortgage and assorted loans for the car. You'll have your holidays and your weekends. It'll be your job. There's a rucksack. Remember my rucksack collection? That's it. It's your job. It's your career. It's your pension, of course. It's your salary. All these things, you can say, are mine. No doubt you'll have a wardrobe full of clothes. You might even have um, an, uh, an over flow of these rented storage facilities as well with your stuff in. You know, we have much stuff that we call our own, what's mine. Now, if you're pressed, you might even say that your body is mine. It's mine to do with what I want with. You will probably, um, if you're Christian folk, you will say, well, what I do in church is important. That's why it's a picture of a pulpit there and not something strange I have in my house. You know, what we do in church, we tend to say, right, that's me. That's what I do. This is where I identify myself. It's mine. You'll include people. You'll include your wife, your spouse, your children, especially your children. You may include friends. But for me, it's especially my children. Now, on Father's Day, of course, it's, a, it's perfect timing. Now, what about the things that aren't quite so pleasant? What about your bad back, or my bad back, or your dodgy knee, or something which is, it's mine, it's yours, it's something that you own, it doesn't have appear on anybody else's list of things. All the things that we count are ours. Now, there's a, there's a way of testing these things, because you, you can hear sometimes people say this, you can say, it's mine, I'll do what I want with it. And that tells you straight away, they've got claim on that thing. Or you'll hear them say, no, we can't throw that away. It's important to me. And that's one of my lines, especially when it comes to ancient T-shirts or clothes. Or, well, I can't change jobs because that's what I do. 
this is, that's where I am. That defines me. I, I need that job. If I lose it, I don't know what I'll do about myself. The things that we take on board to be ours, our possessions, get deep inside our souls. Everything has an owner. It must be a global law, I guess, that anything and everything belongs to someone. And our Western society and consumer culture are all for it. But have you ever noticed that you can't share something? You can't have two people owning the same thing. You can't have two owners. Shared ownership is nice in theory, but in the long term it doesn't work. Particularly when one of them is the God of creation. So here's a challenge. What if the Bible says all these things we've mentioned are not actually meant to be ours, be yours, be mine. So they're not intended to be owned by us. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Simple enough. It says God owns everything and everyone. Whatever there is or was came from him and still belongs to him. Everybody, that's you, that's me, your possessions, your time, your skills, the children, the relationships, the riches, and even the problems. It all belongs to God in his view, and I'm not going to argue with him. Now, that fits in with other verses like Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light. The opening line of the Bible tells us that God created time, space, and matter. So every, every atom of carbon, every molecule of water, every electron, every proton, the galaxy we live in, and all the many other galaxies, everything were made by him and are owned by him. They are his. In John 1, beginning of the gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So again, it's the opening passage is stating clearly, through Jesus all things were made. Without Jesus, nothing could have been made that was made. Every intricate leaf, every fingerprint, every bird feather, every detail was made through Jesus. He made everything. He made you. He made me. He even went then to buy us when he lost us. All things means everything. So when you find in the Bible, you get these words, all things or everything or everybody or always, they are infinite. They're not about what's inside a corner of a room. They're infinitely applied. So, if we go back, what is mine? So whatever I own, anything that I declare is mine, can't be owned simultaneously by me and by God. It's either mine or it's his. It's nice to share, but it doesn't work. Joint ownership doesn't work. God has given me free will, so... He's given me the right to choose 
He isn't going to take things from me because he's let me hang on to them. He's not going to take them until I've offered it and surrendered it to him. As someone said, God is a perfect gentleman. He will not take what hasn't been offered. The fact our bank accounts don't get raided by God testifies to that. So whatever whatever I own remains mine unless I give ownership to God. Give it over to him. I release it to him. And accept that if I've got it, it's just because it's been entrusted to me. It's mine for a while. It's given to me to be a steward over. It's on loan from the almighty God with a timer. And we have to understand and accept this principle. That it's an allocated time and it's for a season. And so I make a choice and I've got that. So it's no longer mine, it's now, it's on loan. Peter said it's by grace in its various forms that, and by that grace in its various forms we have life, we have skills, we have people in our lives, we have children, we have families, we have relationships, and yes, we have money. He wants us not to own them, but to look after them, to care for them, to be stewards of them, to manage them well and on his behalf because he's not here. He's physically absent. He isn't trying to deprive us of control. He knows, actually, that being a steward is easier than being the owner. And he wants to make our lives easier and less complicated. So, point one, I've explained a bit about stewardship and ownership and the difference between the two. And now move to the second area, which is, come on, yes, there we go. Owners have rights, stewards have responsibilities. One of the major differences between these two roles is who gets to worry. The owner has authority, of course, and ultimate responsibility for possession if it gets damaged or lost. They alone will need to fix it replace it, and if it's valuable and there's a thief skirking around looking to damage it or take it, then the owner is the only one with legitimate right to defend it. If it's a beloved, a child who's under threat or in in peril, the owner will be fearful, anxious for their safety, and if it's a career that's under threat, if it's your job, that redundancy is looming in the darkness, then there's going to be worry and despair about the future. So you get worry, you get anxiety, and you get fear. But not necessarily for those who've given ownership of those things and people to God, because the steward can say, Lord, I've been responsible for this, I've I've done all I can, but now you've got to get involved. I've reached the limit of what I can do for this problem, for this job, for this person. Lord, this teenager, this car, this, this employment, it's, it's got to be in your hands now. I can't do any more myself. It's yours. I'm just the steward doing it on your behalf. Which is right because it's his power. is so much better and better and bigger than ours. His resources are so much bigger and better than ours. And he can be everywhere at the same time, which obviously is a bit difficult for us. 
even mums. So the person with ownership has got authority and has got the right to do what they choose with their possession, the right to decide what happens next, to defend it from attack, arrange the rescue, or get it fixed and arrange for a replacement. With human beings, that is not so easy because we are most times not in the right place at the right time to do those things. And we definitely don't have the infinite power that God has got. For example, imagine, like me, you've got three boys. And they're little and they're cute and they're in your arms and it's wonderful. And they're right there and you can look after every moment of their day. It's great. And they go through teenage stuff and it's normal and they misbehave. And that's fine because they're still in your they're still in your reach. You can still reach out and get your hand on them or be there in a few minutes or wherever they are. But if they find dangerous hobbies, like some of my boys do. So this is my youngest, Stuart, just turned 30. And he has this thing about mountains and snow. So the picture on the right shows him a little bit snowy, and that's not because he's been playing angels in the snow. It's because he skis off-piste, and he goes into places, and he has a whistle just hanging orange from his there, and he's got in a backpack. He's got his transponder, so he gets hit by an avalanche. He's got a shovel, and someone can get his signal. And the whistle is he falls into a snow hole feet first with his feet up, the skis on the end, and he just whistles until someone comes to help him. So this is not your average youth or young man. Well, then you've got the other two. Now, on the left, the picture shows a cliff face. And there's two people, one at the top, one halfway up, and the one halfway up is my middle son, Rick. He was a rock climber. Rock climbing is not the... Um, least dangerous activity in the world. Not the most dangerous, but it's not the least either. And he had a very near miss once. So a son who does outdoor activities like that is going to have an impact on his parents and their well-being and their thinking and their imagination. And then the eldest. Time in Afghanistan. A Royal Marine. I do not want to go there, but you can probably guess. So... The problem is, when they're in those situations, I am not at the top of that cliff with a rope to pull him out. I am not in the helicopter to scoop him up. You're going to feel helpless, and you'll feel their safety is out of your control, which it is. And then, of course, the problem is, you start to suffer with anxiety and worry. But your alternative is to go down the stewardship route, and you hand over ownership for their safety and their lives, and you release them to God. Because God loves them more than you do, and he's got more powers to look after them than you do, and he's promised he will do that. So you can guess which one we opted for, and which one Sally opted for. So this is a few weeks ago. Everyone's fine. All is good. So the steward doesn't need to get wild and fight for the thing that he's looking after because that's the job of the owner. So whatever it is 
that you're caring for, whether it's your job, your role in church, or your money, or your um, house, or your car, if God's got the ownership, then you can be a bit more relaxed about how life goes. Now, I say car because I had an experience a year or two back where it could have been unpleasant and stressful, and this car, which is in the car park outside today, could have been ending up as a cubic meter of steel, squashed, because a couple of years ago, minding my own business, driving down the M56, I just got in the, the middle lane on the way home, and the engine just cut out, safely onto the hard shoulder, and then for the next two hours, I was just making sure God understood that this is his car, right? It's not my car, this is your car, God. Yeah, I can't fix this car because I'm not a mechanic. I've got spanners at home, but uh, this sounded much too serious, and a BMW is a computer on wheels rather than a traditional car. But for a couple of hours waiting for the pickup to come and take me home and take it away, I didn't know what was going on. All I knew was that this is God's car, I'm in trouble, and I trust God to get it fixed. So BMW had a look at it, and they said, broken timing chain? Does that mean anything to people here? Essentially, it means a piece flies off in the middle of the engine while it's running at full speed and pretty much breaks everything inside the engine. So when they gave me the list of the things that had to be replaced, it sounded like it was an A4 page of things. It was just very demoralizing on the phone. And then when he said, and the cost's going to be uh, about £8,000 to fix it. Now, for a car which is six years old, 130,000 miles on the clock, and I only paid about 9000 for it, you're not going to spend £8,000 of your dwindling savings on getting a car replaced that could be dead in a year anyway because of age. And so I had a chat with my, the owner, the God, and he's... And I seem to be thinking, okay, I need to let go of this. And say, so, okay, we'll just scrap it. It's just not worth the money. So I told BMW, look, forget it. I will um, just take it away and get it crushed and sell it as scrap or whatever. But it's, I'm not going to spend that money on that car. I heard nothing for about three days. And then the guy finally got hold of me from the garage and said, look, as an act of goodwill, because we know we had a problem with these engines, what we'll do, we'll reduce your price from 8,000 down to 1,800. Would that be okay? I thought, oh, yes. Yeah, that, that's absolutely fine. I'll go with that. I'm more than happy to pay that because it, it is worth that much. So they had it for another week or so, and I picked it up on Monday, Thursday, two years ago. <sighs> and they, uh, they gave me the invoice. I was expecting pages of you know, all the bits they put in. But there was one page, and it was about half full. And the number said 584 pounds. So I was looking for the other pages, you know, where's the rest of it? He said, no, 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 that, that's it. As an act of goodwill, they decided that they would just charge me for a, a bit of labor, and that was it. So I know, I know that stewardship is a working principle. Okay, so we've, we've covered the first one with ownership and stewardship. We've covered the second one about um, responsibility for the 
the, the possessions. And the last point, so we're on our home stretch now. It's about accountability, being accountable to God. In the parable, Matthew 25, the master promoted his three slaves up to stewards. And then before he went away, he, he gave them, or he entrusted to them his fortune, his wealth. And he wanted them to do something. He wanted them to manage it and look after it until he came back and to be responsible for what he gave them, not just hide it under a bucket or dig a hole and bring it out dirty. He wanted them to do something constructive with it, to use it well. And in the same way, God has promoted us to being his children and has entrusted us with all he's created. Now, I don't mean that just the mountains and trees and the environment. Of course, yes, the environment, but also the people, also the gospel, also the income we generate, also the, the people that are in our lives, our children, our families, you know, everything. It's all been created by him. He owns everything, and he's been entrusting it to us. So, we're at an end now. He wants us to be the stewards. He wants us to look after his creation. He doesn't want us to be owners because that's actually not the best deal. There's too much anxiety and stress that goes with being the owner of something. It's easier, it's better to be the person who just manages it on behalf of the God who owns it. Now, that may be our body, that we take care of our body. It may be our families, that we take care of them and we don't just use them. It'll be our church, it'll be our money, it'll be all the things that God has brought into our lives. He wants us to do something with them. So, all we've got to do is choose. We've got to choose, is it mine or is it on loan? Simple. And then, something Neil used to say years ago, we can hold things lightly, not grasp them tight that someone's got to wrench out of our grip, but we can hold them lightly so that when the time comes to be taken from our grasp, it's not going to destroy us or break our fingers or cause stress and strain. Let's pray now. Father, this is all your stuff. And, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen with the words I've spoken today, whether I need to ask for people's forgiveness later on. We'll wait and see. But there'll be those folks here today who are ready to release what they own to you, whether it's people or stuff or finance or whatever, or careers. There'll be those who are ready to release it, and Lord, we want to give that to you now. We want to let go of those things so that we can enjoy them better, probably, and that you can have your rightful ownership and access to them so you can fix them, so you can sort them, so you can move things on, so you can develop. Well, there's going to be folks who just aren't ready yet to transfer the ownership rights across to the Heavenly Father. But maybe they're willing to try one thing as an experiment. So Lord, I ask for them that 
that those folks will find that one thing that they can transfer across to you as a test, just to see what happens and to see how well it works. And Lord, for those who, who just are not ready yet for any of this, where it's all a little bit strange and foreign, then Lord, please bring them to a place where they're willing to be made willing. Just move them along so that they get closer to you, closer to trusting you, closer to knowing you, closer to wanting to serve you. Lord, it's all hopeless and futile without your help. It's not about human effort and endeavor. It's all about what you help us to do through your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we, we, we invite you in this morning not to do anything dramatic, just to quietly pervade and infuse and nudge and speak to us. Lord, if there's anything in this morning's talk which has been of me, let it be forgotten as people leave the building. If it's from you, then please keep it afresh this afternoon and this evening and tomorrow morning so that people don't forget what you said. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's talk. Join us next week for another inspirational message.